I was running a great race. I out fundraised Bruce Pollock in every quarter. I took, I did everything you're supposed to do. I did well in debates. I, you know, had a great field operation. And on election night in 2014, I was predicted to win. This is the day that changed everything. A podcast series produced by Maine Biz, Maine's business news source. Every two weeks, we will post an interview with a Maine business leader whose life or business was upended in one day and learned how they navigated their way back. If all great changes are preceded by chaos, then this podcast series seeks to help us make sense of the chaos. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank, Maine Technology Institute, or MTI, and Sutherland Weston. Remember why you went into business? You can say to fulfill a dream or change the world, but I'll bet the real reason you went into business was to make money. So how are you doing? And would you like to do better? Sutherland Weston Marketing Communications has been helping Maine businesses better do what they were built to do, make money by reaching audiences, catching eyes and ears, and helping them make the sale. Worth a phone call? Find Sutherland Weston Marketing Communications online at sutherlandweston.com. Hi, this is Donna Broussard from Maine Biz. Welcome to the day that changed everything. Today, we're going to be talking with Emily Kane, who's the executive director of Emily's List in Washington, D.C. But Emily is an Oronoite, was living in Maine for many years. And many of you may remember that she was part of the Maine Congress for 10 years, first as a representative and then as a senator. So Emily, welcome. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. What a, what a great idea for a way to tell a story. Thanks. So let's tell the folks a little bit about you. So you first came to Maine when you were a teenager, right? Yeah, my parents moved to Maine right as I was finishing high school. And so they moved to Kennebunk and I came pretty much straight to Orono to start at the University of Maine, uh, where I've been ever since. <laughs> you know, I came to Orono in the in August of 1998 and other except you know, a quick jaunt to Boston to get a master's degree. I've been here ever since. I, I love this community and I've, I'm really excited about, about what I've done and what, I've, what I'm able to do now from here. And so you were elected to the Maine House of Representatives in 2004 when you were just 24 years old. What brought that on? It's a really interesting story. My undergraduate degree is in vocal music education. I'm a singer and I was trained to be a K through 12 music educator. Some days I think maybe I would like to go back and teach <laughs> kindergarten music actually. I, I think I'm not ruling it out, I should say that. But it was while I was at the University of Maine, particularly having so many friends who were first generation college students and meeting so many people who like me had a hard time figuring out studying, I mean, figuring out how to afford college, that I began to sort of have this interest peaked in college access, affordability, success, quality, the translation between getting a college degree and having opportunity afterward to, to get a good, good job. So when I finished my undergraduate degree, I worked for a year at the University of Maine in the Honors College, and then I went down to Boston to Harvard and got a master's degree in higher education, which is really where I started to connect the dots between the things I cared about, which were in higher education, and elected officials often making bad choices. And I thought, you know, I want to work in public policy. I, I had this sort of lightning bolt fireworks moment of I want to work in public policy. And when you're at Harvard at the education school, you go across the street to the Kennedy School of Government and say, 
I'd like to take a class here, please. Um, I actually took a class called the US Congress and Lawmaking. I represented Maine's 2nd Congressional District in a simulation of Congress. I was elected to be the Assistant Majority Leader in that simulation and thought as I, as I headed towards graduation that I was, honestly, I just I wanted to work in public policy. I wanted to work uh, in education policy. And I, I came back, it was May, I think it was May 23rd of 2004. I was at a Kentucky Derby party that was a fundraiser to benefit the library at the University of Maine. And I saw my state senator, Mary Cathcart. Mary had been a longtime state senator in the Maine legislature, was terming out. I knew Mary a little bit, but I went over to see Mary and her husband, Jim, and I said, Mary, I'm about to finish this master's degree. I really want to work in public policy. I would love to send you my resume. I, I asked if she maybe would, could pass it on to someone at the State House or maybe in the Department of Education so I could follow this passion. And it was actually her husband, Jim, who said, Emily, have you ever thought about running for office? Sort of, I mean, I'm not one to rule things out. So I sort of laughed. I was like, no, I haven't really, but who knows? And, and he turned to Mary and said, Mary, I think we found our candidate. Wow. And I, I said, for what? <laughs> I didn't know that the state house seat was opening here. And to make a longer story shorter, that was May of 2004. June 10th, I graduated with my master's degree. July 1st, I started a part-time job at the University of Maine. July 6th, I became a candidate for the house. And August 15th, I got married that year. I took six days off to get married. Uh, and then after knocking on thousands of doors, and doing a ton of work. I won a three-way race for the State House in November of 2004 wow. um, and never looked back. So it was never part of a master plan. I don't come from a, an overly political family. We always voted. And, but I, for me, it was about following that passion for, for making college more affordable, for ensuring we have quality higher education here in Maine. That's what got me started, and it all just grew from there. After being elected, you were re-elected several times. You were in the, the House of Representatives from 2004 to 2012. 2014. Oh, yeah, then I was in the Senate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 2014. Mm -hmm. You were minority leader in 2008 to 2010, and then you ran for the Senate, the Maine State Senate. What yeah, I actually was, I was chair of the Appropriations Committee from 2008 to 2010. I was the minority leader 2010 to 2012, okay. and then I was in the state Senate 2012 to 2014. Well, you know, what's interesting about that is it's honestly, being in, in the House was one of the first times that I learned the lesson about how in politics, things don't always go the way that you thought they were going to go. And it was really, you know, I had I loved being in the legislature. I, I loved the budget work in particular. I chaired the Appropriations Committee during the recession. We balanced five unanimous bipartisan budgets during the largest shortfalls our state had seen in, in really a generation or more. I'm proud of that work. And I decided I would run for Speaker of the House to be this 100th Speaker of the Maine House after the 2010 election. Democrats had held the majority in the Maine House since before I was born since the mid-1970s, and we were working hard. But as you might remember, 2010 was a bit of a turn the world upside down election, something we've had a few of since then. And we had Paul LePage elected the governor, and we had Republicans take the House and the Senate in Maine for the first time in more than 40 years. And right. so for me, it was the first time that, I mean, the job of speaker was no longer available to me, um, that I had to change my plan and think about why did I want to do this work? What, what was driving me? And I made a quick pivot and made the case to my caucus 
that I was the best person to be the minority leader at that time. And I, I earned their support. And we not only governed from the minority and led, but we also took back the majority. So I'm very proud of that time. But it was really one of my first lessons, well, one of many, but one of the most public lessons I ever had about early on, where things sometimes just don't go the way you want them to in politics. Right. Now you're in the Senate, right? Mm -hmm. And then the opportunity for running for the U.S. House of Representatives comes to you. What did that feel like? Well, I got to tell you, it's really funny how life happens sometimes. So in 2012, in spring of 2012, you might remember, so I was the minority leader uh, in, the, in the House. Our senators were Olympia Snow and Susan Collins. Mike Michaud and Shelley Pingree were our members of Congress. Paul LePage was our governor. And I was uh, in my office when I got a note. So I should say, I was really working hard to take back the majority. And I had, uh, along with our other members of leadership, we'd reached out to Emily's List, this national group in Washington, D.C., to come and do a training for our women candidates in, uh, I think it was March of that year, to help them boost their campaigns and help us with our mission to take back the majority. We did that training on a Friday at the Portland Library, I remember. And the following week, Olympia Snow made the announcement that she was not going to run for re-election. And Mike Michaud made the announcement that he was looking at running for the Senate. And I had to make a quick decision, and I did. I made a very quick decision to say that I would run for the second district if Mike Michaud didn't. And I ran a very wonderful 72-hour not real campaign for Congress as I began the process of collecting signatures under a very short deadline, waiting to see whether Mike would stay in that race or come back to the House. I would never have run against Mike. I love Mike. And he made the decision not to run for the Senate. I therefore made the decision not to run for Congress. But what that little bit of a moment and risk taking taught me was that in 72 hours, I could mobilize volunteers, people who I'd never met, but people who knew who I was and who if I asked them to help me, they would, to collect signatures in Lewiston, in Bangor, down in Hancock County, in Oxford County, all the way up to the crown of Maine in Aroostook. Um, and it was a good taste of it. And so when the next winter came around and I first heard the idea that Mike Michaud would run for governor, first that made me excited because he would have been a great governor, but it really gave me a minute to say, do I want to run for Congress and how do I make sure I do it right? And so that process began in uh, really the winter of 2013. I met with friends and family here in Maine and then I met with somebody from Emily's List uh, who came up to talk with me about what it would take to run a real campaign for Congress, and we started making plans. So you ran the campaign, and it was a tough campaign. Yes. And the result was not what you what you wanted. Yeah, I mean, so the campaign started in June of 2013, and I ended up in a primary with my colleague and friend, Troy Jackson. And so I had to first get through the primary, which I did. Um, I won the primary in June of 2014, and then ended up with Bruce Poliquin as my opponent. And he'd been running against Kevin Ray, who was in the Senate, uh, the Ayatollah was in the Senate, and who is a very close friend of mine. We ran a great campaign that year. I was one of the top ranked candidates for Congress in the country. Um, this district, you know, was, uh, had been Democratic for many years, and I was running a great race. I out fundraised Bruce Poliquin every quarter. I took, I did everything you're supposed to do. I did well in debates. I, you know, had a great field operation. And on election night in 2014, I was predicted to win. Now we knew it would be close. I never thought I would win by a lot. I knew it would be by a little. I believed it would be by a little. But I mean, even 
the, uh, even Republicans were predicting that I was going to win that election. And I felt good about winning because we had done the work, took nothing for granted. I had reached out, I had delivered my messages, I had spoken from the heart. And around, I don't know, 1030 or so that night, I remember one of my campaign staffers came down to see me and was like, the numbers are not coming in the way we are expecting in some of the places that we thought we might win. They're, they're closer. You know, even though I'd won Bangor and I'd won Lewiston, and they're, they're closer than we want them to be in some of these other places. And they said, it's going to be going to go into the middle of the night. You're not going to know before the 11 o'clock news. So we think you should go out and give a speech. So I did. I went out. I gave a big speech in front of the crowd. It says, we don't know what time we're going to be finished here tonight. We're, gonna, we're holding out hope. I meant every word of it. You know, I got all dressed up and went out in front of my, this packed room of supporters and all these TV cameras and told everybody we'd see them in the morning. And about, I think it was 1.30, maybe 2.30 in the morning, they called the race for Bruce Poliquin. I called him on the phone to congratulate him. I hung up the phone and I, and I had a good cry. Yeah. With my family, with my husband. So that, so that certainly is a day that changed everything. That, especially when you had high hopes going into it. Well, yes. And I really wanted to do the job, right? It was, it was for me, the, uh, an am amazing opportunity to take the things that I'd been working on so effectively and uh, for 10 years in Augusta, not just higher education, but domestic violence and research and economic development, support for small businesses, you know, thinking differently about the way we do taxes here in the state of Maine, thinking about how we grow our economy in an environmentally conscious way, making sure that we're, we're not forgetting about all those working families who are still impacted by the mills that closed many years ago. Some of them were still open then yeah. in Lincoln, a town that I represented in the Senate, right? Yeah. Those guys were my friends. And, yeah. and for me, uh, losing that election was, made me just it was concerned about all the people I cared about who I wanted to do work for in Washington and whether or not they were going to have a voice anymore. So we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and learn about what happens in the aftermath of losing the election that you had pinned a lot of hope on and really wanted to take on to help the people of Maine. And we'll be right back after this short break. Mainers have an unrivaled work ethic, an endless supply of ideas, a boundless energy to create, and the perseverance to not say it's done until it's done better than it was before. Which is why the Maine Technology Institute was created to support, nurture, and invest in those qualities and make Maine a place where ideas and people can thrive. To see how MTI supports innovation, go to maintechnology.org. That's maintechnology.org. I remember being awake where my body was awake and my mind was awake, but my eyes were not open because I was afraid to open them because I didn't know what it was going to feel like to have lost the election. We're back. It's Donna Broussard here with Emily Kane, and we're talking about the day that changed everything. So we lost the election, Emily. It was close what you lost after all that work and all that effort you talked about you know having a good cry after the fact so how do you pick up the pieces from there where do you go from there you actually ended up doing it again what, what, you want to talk about that so when you are not expecting to lose an election and you do you don't have a plan for how that's going to feel right i i can tell you i've won five elections i've lost two winning feels better just gonna say plainly um, but when I lost that election, I'll tell you that the most impactful moment for me, but what was going to happen next actually came the next morning. 
So I had the good cry in the middle of the night and I was at the Hilton Garden Inn in Bangor. And we had gotten rooms there because we had a lot of people and activities and, and so we went to bed. And Danny and I went to sleep. Uh, the next morning, Danny got up before I woke up to go pick up signs. He was just gonna get in the truck and go pick up signs because we had a lot of them. And I remember being awake where my body was awake and my mind was awake, but my eyes were not open because I was afraid to open them because I didn't know what it was going to feel like to have lost the election. And I remember taking a deep breath and doing a countdown and then opening my eyes all of a sudden. And somehow it was surprising to me that the hotel room looked exactly the same as it had the night before. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Up in ashes. <laughs> okay, step one, okay, eyes open. Step two, go in the bathroom and brush your teeth. And I remember going into the bathroom, I swear this is 100% true, and I, I looked in the mirror and I went, huh, you don't look so bad. <laughs> I actually, again, was sort of surprised. I looked just like myself. Yes, you did. And, you know, I brushed my hair and I, I went downstairs and I had breakfast with people who I've known my whole life who loved me exactly the same as they had the day before. Right. I came back upstairs, my campaign manager and another one of our, uh, our team members uh, helped me clean up the hotel room and we headed out. And I went down to the lobby and there were members of the press there with microphones and cameras. And I was wearing jeans and a sweater and I'm pretty sure my hair was in a ponytail. And I did not have a planned statement. I never had to give a concession speech on TV because it was the middle of the night when it got called. And the most, the most important thing that happened next was my, my campaign manager said, if you don't want to talk to them, you don't have to. And I said, no, of course I want to talk to them. I mean, I, I've always had a good relationship with the press. And I went over and one of the reporters said to me, Emily, you've lost this election. What are you going to do next? And I remembered, I just said the first thing that came to mind, which was, well, I woke up yesterday caring about the future of the state of Maine. And I woke up today caring about the same thing. So I'm gonna do something that has to do with that. And I left. Good answer. And I, I remember I got in the car to go home and I remember laughing and saying, I'm okay. I, because the thing is when you're in it for the right reasons, when you're not in it for the title, right? When you're not in it for the glamor and let me newsflash to everyone who's listening, running for office and serving in office is not glamorous. I can tell you I've done both for a while. You have to be in it for the work, for the things you care about, and then whether you win or lose, you're gonna be okay, right? Because then it's just a matter of tactic. Do I, what, was, what is the next tactic I'm going to use to accomplish the things that I was trying to do in the first place? And so for me then, it meant taking stock. I did not make the decision to run right, again right away. Um, I actually took all through the holidays and into the beginning of the new year and made the decision after the holiday. I ran again. I'm actually so glad I did. My second campaign was even better. I think the environment, obviously, you know, Donald Trump won this district by a lot in 2016. It was a district that had gone for the Democrat for president every year since 92. I think I made a smart decision to run again. But most of all, when I ran again, I ran unafraid to lose. Right. I ran with an openness and a fervor and an honesty that while I had it in the first campaign, when you run it for higher office for the first time, you, you want to do it right, right? So you're not as open to taking risks. And the second time I ran, I ran the second campaign with an even greater authenticity, I think, than I did the first one. 
um, because I was on Afraid to Lose. I know who I am. I know why I do this work. And I came to win. I didn't. And after, you know, I lost that second election, I was pretty sure I wouldn't run again. That, that I wasn't, I, you know, it was, I've been on the ballot every year for a long time. But I did know that I was okay. I was myself. I had done it for the right reasons. And it was just a matter of finding that next tactic to to make sure the things I care about, I could still have an impact on. Even though you didn't win the election, you felt like at least you had a voice during the election, I'm sure. I'm so glad I ran again. And I think in uh, timing is everything in politics and it's, you know, the environment overall is something you can't control, right? You can control how much money you raise or how many volunteers you have, what your plan is to get out the vote or your message. You can't predict the environment. And uh, no, I could not have predicted 2016, but I know I did the right thing both times. I don't have any regrets and I'm a better person for all of it. So after that, after losing the second time, so then what led you to where you are now, Emily Flynn? <laughs> well, first I should say, I watched a lot of Food Network after the 2016 <laughs> I love to cook and bake, and my sort of escape from the reality of 2016 election results, um, I spent time with friends, and I watched a lot of Food Network, uh, which was really great through the holidays, um, but it was actually uh, that, I knew I wasn't going to run again, that I had, and that decision was pretty easy to make. I'd been on the ballot every other year since I was 24 years old, and I was at that point, you know, 36. Uh, about to turn 37 and thinking, I think it might be time for something different. I also knew that I, I didn't, wasn't ready to kind of jump back into the state house, right? I had offers from probably three or four offers from around the state to uh, either work for companies or organizations or lead companies or organizations in Maine because of my connections to the state house, right? right. And they would all have had a government affairs kind of role and I knew I wasn't ready to have, after having my whole adult life pretty much dictated schedule-wise by the state house, I knew I was ready for something different. And I actually took a great job as a, the chief strategy officer of a Maine-based woman-led tech company called History IT. That's based in Portland. I worked for them out here out of Bangor as the chief strategy officer doing business development and market expansion. I was good at that job. I, I loved that job. I'm working for my friend Kristen Gwynn, who is the founder and CEO of that company in Portland. And it was one day while I was at that job that I got a call from a friend named Alex, who used to work at Emily's List, who had known me through my campaigns. And she called and said, Emily, I just got word that the executive director of Emily's List position is opening. And I said, okay. And she said, and I think you should apply. Wow. And my exact words to her, exact words were, you must be on drugs. They don't hire people like me for that job. They hire operatives. They hire people who've been strategists and campaign managers, people who've been consultants and who've you know, done other things. And she said, I think that's why you need to apply. I think she, she had worked at Emily's List for many years and she said, I think you're what they need right now. They'd never had someone who was a former elected or candidate be in the leadership of Emily's List before. And so when you lose two races for Congress, which are very public, where your face is on statewide television for months at a time, it changes you a little bit. And one of the things it does is it really makes you a little more fearless. At least it did for me. Because mm -hmm. my brain went to a place of, that would be a dream job to be the executive director of Emily's List. But 
no one's going to know I applied, <clears throat> excuse me, unless I tell them. So if I don't get a job, nobody knows I applied for, who cares, right? I was like, what do I have to lose? So I wrote a letter to my now boss and friend, Stephanie Shriok, who's the president of Emily's List, and said, I know you don't normally think about people like me for this job, but here's why I think I'm perfect for it. And it was about a page and a half long letter, and I sent it off. There you go. And I thought, it's either going to go or it's not. And when they called me for an interview, I laughed and said, wow, they're giving me a courtesy interview because they know me. It's nice. And I really, I did the first interview and I hung up the phone and I called my friend Alex and said, I want this job. This is the perfect job for me. But when I interviewed, I interviewed with, and you know, I think one of the things I try to give people advice on when they apply for jobs that they, they're not sure are the right fit for them. I always say just either they want what you have or they don't. Right. So I didn't run trying to pretend that I'd been a campaign manager of a statewide election in some state. I, I ran as someone who had balanced billions of dollars in state budgets, who had led a caucus of more than 70 adults from the minority back to the majority, who had been a good fundraiser, who understood organizational leadership and administration because of my background in higher education. And basically ran as my, I, I applied for the job as me. You want me or you don't. And if you don't, that's okay. I have a great job. And then I got the job and it, it's just been the best. It's, it, it's like, it's like it was meant to be. I, it's like I would have been in training for this job without knowing it for my whole life. It's pretty fun to be Emily from Emily's List, even though that it's just, have, just a happy coincidence. Let's tell people who may not understand what Emily's List is. What, what is Emily's List all about? Emily's List is the nation's largest resource for women in politics. It was founded in 1985 with a mission to elect pro-choice democratic women. And Emily is not a person. It's not the name of our founder. Her name is Ellen Malcolm. Uh, it is actually an acronym that stands for early money is like yeast. It raises the dough. It makes the dough rise. And the idea of the, of the organization was we would provide early support to women candidates and help them get taken seriously by the political establishment. Okay, so your election experience has certainly come into great use here for it, these uh, candidates. Well, it is because I have been there and not in a theoretical way. One of the things I think I've brought to Emily's List is I've brought that candidate experience perspective to all of the work that we do, whether it is, you know, our events, the way we fundraise for candidates, the way we support them. I'm also a person who gets on the phone with our candidates to say, how are you? I know how you feel right now. Right. Um, and I think the combination of my work, you know, having served both in the minority and in the majority gives me a different perspective on what our candidates and our, our state house caucuses around the country are dealing with. Um, and I've also been there to try to balance that falsehood of, you know, that work-life balance when as an elected official and a candidate, there's no balance. You just are an elected official or a candidate, there's no time off from that and, and what that scrutiny brings along with it. So I, I think I have instant credibility with not just our staff and our partners, but with our candidates to say, I've been there, I get it, and let's talk about how you can win. Well, it's been a long journey since that 24-year-old who ran for... I'm 40 now, so... So uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about sort of lessons learned and what the future of Emily and Emily's List looks like. We'll be Great. right back. You've worked, you saved, and now it's time to enjoy what you've earned, your retirement. 
This is Kurt Garasha of Norway Savings Asset Management Group. We're more than just retirement advisors. We're family fiduciaries, promising to put you and your family's interest and goals first. Let us help you write your next chapter. For more information, visit norwaysavings.bank. Investment products are not FDIC insured, not guaranteed by the bank, and may lose value. You have to know what gets you out of bed in the morning, because the days are hard, because it is not glamorous. Most things are not glamorous. So you have to know why you do it. For me, it started with those questions and challenges in higher education, right? And it still drives me today. Hey, it's Donna Broussard. I'm back here talking with Emily Kane from Emily's List, the executive director of this national organization based in Washington. While we were taking a break, we were chatting. And so you, up until COVID, you were actually commuting, right, to Washington every week? Yeah, thank, I love that uh, American Airlines direct flight from Bangor to Washington, D.C. I, I would take that very early morning flight on Mondays um, and fly back home on the direct flight Thursday night or Friday. And I had been doing that every week from the middle of July 2017 until March 15th. I flew home on March 15th after transitioning our, our team of 120 plus people plus interns to work from home. And I flew home thinking I would be here, you know, maybe for a few months, two, yeah, three, three months. Yeah, I know. Yeah. We said three months with, the yeah. with, our, with our team. We said three months. Just take enough supplies for three months. And here we are. I mean, and here it is later. six months later. Yeah. And I am talking to you from live from my house on Main Street in Orono, uh, you know, with my dog sleeping nearby. So, and you're, and you're running a hundred plus employee national organization from your house in, in Orono. Yeah, I'm lucky to have such an amazing team. This is a talented team that is so focused on their work that honestly, the location of shift from one to the other, the, the, the thing that our team was most worried about was making sure our candidates had the resources they needed to move their campaigns to a virtual environment. And uh, so we, we got ourselves situated very quickly so that we could then make sure that the women we work with all across the country were able to communicate with voters and their team and supporters uh, remotely and safely as well. Great. So let's talk a little bit about lessons learned and what advice you would give. I'm sure you are giving lots of advice in your role with Emily's List to, to young candidates, but what would some of the learning experiences be that you would want to share with others? I, the first bucket I would sort of say are what I would call Emily Kane lessons, right? One of which is you got to drink a lot of water when you do this work. And I, I know it sounds silly, but it's sort of, I always, I always, I just did an intern luncheon the other day and they asked me for advice and I said, you've got to drink water a lot of it. You got to stay hydrated basically. And I say that because it's really a, a more of a symbol of you got to take care of yourself because all of this work, hard things are marathons, right? I've only, I've run a half marathon. I've never run a full uh, on, on, the, on a race, but in my life, I feel like I've run many marathons and you, you have to take care of yourself along the way and be good to yourself. And that also means you have to have something that um, gives you energy that is not necessarily your work, right? Um, and for me, that's the arts. My husband is the executive director of the Collins Center for the Arts at the University of Maine. Um, I'm, I'm a singer and a performer. And in order for me to take that break is when I put on some Broadway show tunes or my Danny plays and I sing at the piano at our house. Um, you, you have to have those things that are not just your work, that, that also complete you, 
right? So for me, that's the arts, that's cooking, that's spending time with friends in a socially distanced appropriate way. So that's sort of that first bucket. The second bucket of lessons for me, it's, it's about knowing why you do something. And I learned this as a kid from my mom. My mom is a sign language interpreter and she always described her work, not just as a job, but as an avocation, right? She is passionate about deaf people. She is passionate about sign language interpreting. And I watched her work hard, but care as much as she did about her work as she did the work. Um, and that's, I learned that from her. And that's how you sustain yourself because if you're in it for those right reasons, and I, I talk about the same thing when I ask women about running for office, you have to know what gets you out of bed in the morning because the days are hard because it is not glamorous. Most things are not glamorous, right? Mm -hmm. Let's be real. So you have to know why you do it. For me, it started with those questions and challenges in higher education, right? And it still drives me today. And I'm so proud earlier this year, Janet Mills appointed me and I was confirmed to the University of Maine System Board of Trustees. I'm still following that passion every single day for quality, affordable, high quality education for the people of Maine. Um, so you have to know why you do this work. Because in politics, for me, it was higher ed, higher ed. And then it became about the challenges communities were facing across Maine. It became about what, what are, how our values are reflected in our state budget, how we could make sure people felt safe in their homes and that they could really thrive. So, so that's sort of, the, you have to know why you do this work. The third set of lessons for me is about what really could probably be summarized as relentless forward progress. Um, my husband jokes that I don't, other than when I drive, I don't have a rearview mirror. I tend to do things and move forward. I learn from them, of course, but I don't spend a lot of time on regret or woulda, shoulda, coulda. And, and honestly, I learned that from my dad. My dad is a shoe salesman. He never went to college. He always has been in the shoe business since his first job when he was in high school. And in our, in our life, my dad would, had lost his job due to no fault of his own, just because the economy changed, um, which caused our family to move several times. I moved before I was one, moved when I was seven, I moved when I was nine, I moved then when I was finishing high school um, to Maine. And what I learned from my dad is that when you lose your job, you have to do something every day to move forward. You don't have to find a job the next day, but you got to do something. Right. And if you can't find that job the next day, maybe you fix that project in your house you've been meaning to get to. And, you know, watching my dad and my mom go through job loss and unemployment, I, I, I will say, well, my dad has lost jobs in his life. He's never not gotten up for work every day, right? And even now, as my dad works in Dexter, Maine, he drives to Dexter four days a week and he runs a small shoe factory there because he's also passionate about his work and believes in, in that manufacturing. So I, I learned that lesson of, you gotta get up and do something every day, you know? So even while I was watching a lot of Food Network after the 2016 election, or I was pretty sad after the 2014 election, I, I never didn't get out of bed and do something, right? And some days you measure success and that forward progress because you made a few networking calls. Some days you, you know, you, you do get around to finally fixing that thing that was broken in your bathroom, but it's about making sure you always have that, that sense of purpose, right? And you can't allow that inertia, you know, or if you do, you got to figure out, going back to that first category of taking care of yourself, if that inertia starts to set in, you got to figure out what is it that gets you back? 
right? What gets your energy back? And that's why for me at Emily's List right now, while I still work in politics and it is still not glamorous to be clear, every day I get excited. My, my commute used to be a walk from 14th Street to 18th Street in DC. I, I get, but I would get out of bed and sort of skip to work, right? Because I, I get to help elect women. Those lessons for me are what make me feel great every day. I'm 40 years old. I don't know if I'll run for office again. I probably will because I love public service and I loved it and I miss it. I miss, I miss the committee work. I miss the, the collaboration. I miss the bipartisan solutions you can find at an unexpected moment that, le that would lead to something that you never even thought could be as good. I miss that in a kind of negotiation. But what I do know is every day I'm helping to elect women who are gonna make our government run better be more representative of people across our country um, and ultimately that makes that makes things better in our world awesome i think that's great last words thank you so much this has been a production of main biz find out more about this podcast and other main biz media products at mainbiz.biz the day that changed everything is sponsored by norway savings bank main technology institute or mti and sutherland weston the Main Biz podcast team includes Renee Cordes, Will Hall, Maureen Milliken, Allison Nason, Andrea Tetzlaff, and Donna Broussard. Audio editor and producer is Chris Sedenka. Logo and marketing designer is Matt Selva. The Main Biz podcast team also thanks Peter Van Allen, Betsy Vanderplug, Ken Hansen for their contributions. Subscribe to the Main Biz podcast at mainbiz.biz or via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Copyright 2020.